Wow, it seems like we just did this. Because we kind of did. Yippers. What? I said yippers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Good to be here. Yeah, so so this is, we're recording early. Relative to when Relative we'll to when it. it'll be released. So this is, it's Monday. Yeah. March the whatever. What is it? 15th, 16th? The 18th. What the heck? Yeah, oh, are we saying this because we don't know if the world will end between now and when it gets aired? Right. Anything, yeah. you know, horrible things can happen. And so we're like, and I'm going to set this to release automatically. I really and don't on- think it's can. I think it's will. Um, oh. <laughs> horrible things seem to happen on a pretty regular basis, planet wide. Yeah. Uh, some of which have really important Ooh. legal implications. Apropos, so we've done not to talk about them. Apropos but. some thoughts I had about the topic for today. Mm. Um, yes, the world has changed. Uh, so things will happen. Yeah. And, and so... It, I just think we should like timestamp this one so people know. Like, wh- why are you idiots? Why are you insensitive clods not addressing what's happened? Well, the right. reason is because this is recorded quite a bit earlier than the than the release. A good date. six days before it's going to drop, probably. Um, but since all of our shows are timeless, mm. our artifacts that can be unearthed a thousand years from now and yeah, provide this is a great point. Um, at least uh, entertainment, um, you know, laughing at style entertainment, if not edification. At that point, when a cable uh, installation bot. And a cable cancellation bot finally are the only two things left on Earth. Ooh, a callback. As they have enlisted the entire planet <laughs> that they can marshal to uh, fight in their favor. Uh, and, and those AIs, millions of years from now, get tired of trying to schedule or cancel cable service. <laughs> um, they will look around themselves, and one of the things they will find are these recordings. I love the cancel bot, cable bot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, which show was that? Was that was with, like the paperclip thing. I mean, was that with is, Mike Madison? There, that we're there, uh, yeah, I think so. There, there is no amount of planetary resources they will not ultimately be able to command uh, in, in, the, in the pursuit of their objective. All right, we're starting to get some feedback piling up. Oh, okay. And this is not a feedback show. Yeah. Oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. Oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, I thought we would address one that came in about the show we just did with Carissa. Mm-hmm. Just to, just to, you know, just to kind of dip in a little bit because I thought it was timely and I w- I've been thinking about it because that show, as we said at the beginning, like there were some technical issues. I think I managed to make the edit sound, you know, basically like a natural conversation, even though there were some fits and starts in it. I think you did. As and always, I didn't edit any of the content. I just kind of put it together in a right. way well, that you, made Right. Well, and sense. you edited around the gaps that had been created and some of the dealing with those gaps. Right. Uh, and, which and, was a number of minutes, actually, yeah. that dropped out. And she had to go suddenly. It, correct. But, but not an unreasonable time. She'd scheduled enough no. time. It's just those, it didn't, anyway, it worked out. Totally I thought it, fair. I enjoyed yeah. listening to it. I, was, I did too. I thought it was um, uh, riotous hearing um, the smoke pour out of your ears. Yeah, yeah. Figuratively, of course. Correct. Uh, meaning that because it's a podcast, I couldn't actually see the smoke that was actually pouring out, pouring out of your ears. Yeah. If we had had a few more hours and I could have, you know, heard more and said more, I would have been thrilled. Okay. But so that was not to be. This is, and I'm not sure how I pronounce the first name. Listener Adol, A-D-I-L. Sorry. I, I just don't, maybe, maybe it's Adol. Or I don't deal. know. Um, hey guys, love the podcast. I know it's a conversation, not an interview, but I really wanted to hear more from Hessek on her paper and the topic in general. Did she speak so little because of the technical problems you mentioned? I guess you edited out the choppy bits. Anyway, thanks for the great listen. So a nice email, but like saying, you know, why didn't you let the guest talk more? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I take that, you know, as I put it together, part of it is that as he says, we are a conversation show, not an interview show. Right. Sometimes I think our conversations with the guests are more interview-like when 
the thing they're talking about is something which requires kind of a lot of instruction to get through. Mm. Like like Larry's paper was a was a real mapping paper where the yes. point of that conversation was to like understand that map. Yeah, and we got the benefit of Larry describing that at, at some length relative to what we were asking about. And there, so there will be a range of shows. Like the, if you did like total amount of guest time speaking yeah. and, and map that uh, over the 190 whatever shows we've done, yeah. it would vary. Yeah, and I, I also, I, I don't want to be too defensive about it because I take the point. Um, this one was particularly challenging because we got cut off early and sometimes the conversation gets going and we get more into the paper yeah. and more into particular parts of the paper and this like you know we didn't get there for whatever reason however also like chris had been on the show and we knew she was like game just to kind of talk and bat these ideas back and forth especially right. on an issue on which you had written joe and on which like you and she kind of disagreed a little bit and i was kind of coming at it from a from a tangent mm-hmm. um i also regret that we kind of didn't talk about the facts of that gun discharge case exactly right and there's a reason why we didn't do that, because I kind of initially thought of some possible definitions and then we ran with those rather than the facts of that case. But I think it, yeah, it, we it, talked about a number of I don't posts. think it really matters. I mean, there was stuff about forks and right. the emoluments clause. We talked about a range of But Chris's hypos. paper is great. And, totally. and we didn't approach it like we do some papers where we kind of go through the paper. And But but all of our conversations are conversations. And I think she's great. If you look at it, she, um, I'm not sure, like, would we have done it exactly the same way again? Uh, I don't know. But I thought it was a really, really fun conversation. But I take the listener's point, and we usually do try to, like, focus on the paper and then go from there. Right. And here it was kind of just go from there from the beginning, you know, with her paper as kind of giving a background and her skepticism yes. of the field rather than a discussion of the paper, given your not not as not, not a skeptical attitude toward it. Anyway, that's how I would characterize it. But um, anyway, I take the listener's point, though. Sounds great. Uh, what else? I think we got to call them up, don't we? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're getting let's get our, getting close to the witching hour. Let's let's get our guests on the line now. I have to say this uh, with our um, one of the ways that we you know we we call on Skype and we get all these things done, and one of the ways that Joe and I differ. So I don't like being late for things. Joe hates like physically loathes being late for things so much so that he shows up uncomfortably early sometimes. Uh, <laughs> Um, you can say as someone at whose home I've shown up uncomfortably early. I think we've talked about this before on the show. Like, I think an etiquette for, you know, for a business meeting or something like that, or for, you know, as you show up on time, you're there on time, right? Maybe arrive a couple minutes early, a few minutes yeah, early. you want to be ready to start on time. You want to be I ready to start on meeting. time. Yeah. I think when it comes to technology, I like to call the guests a couple of minutes late. Because they're going to take a minute to fiddle and get ready. And right. Can be, you can run into a snag. Because they will have planned to have things set up and ready to go at the appointed hour, but it's technology they may not always have that technology ready to go. They may need a few more minutes, and, and there's nothing like more anxiety-provoking than getting a Skype call all of a sudden when you don't have everything quite ready. Right. So I like to, you know, like like right now it's noon. I'm thinking we call it 12.02. Ah, okay. Where Joe would call at 11.45. Not true. <laughs> uh, I would call at 12. <laughs> at 12, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Because I would be waiting at 11.55. Yeah. Watching. The minute go by, and the minute go by, and yeah. the minute go by. And I just have twelve, and I would be like, "At last!" This this call call my uh, so I I agree with you in general on kind of like businessy. I hate you know, but whatever, like professional type conversations and or just right. meetings where other people are you know, where it's not a social you thing. Said technology, you know, this is a technological codicil we've to adapted the ordinary to, rules of society. But I bet you aren't that way about using a telephone. Like if you're calling no. someone on a telephone, because we don't we, that is so common and familiar that yeah. we don't think of it as quote technology. I would anymore. call right at the appointed time. Yeah. Um, if it's a meeting in someone's office, right at the appointed time. I would and show so, up a little bit early. And so 30 years from now, right. dear listener, when you're listening to this episode, you will think of Skype then the way we think of phones now. Right. This is, as I say, this is the technological codicil. Okay. Um, I'm going to hit pause so that we can get them on the line. 
I feel a little bit guilty because you're three of my favorite people, so I kind of just want to listen to the three of you talk. There are only two of them, Joe. I'm saying you and them. I don't believe you. Well, it's true. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Jessica Silby and Zara Saeed. Hi. So that's Zara. Jessica. So that was Jessica. Oh, that was Jessica. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, I identified, uh, I tried to identify Zara by the shimmer in the audio, but like it mm. turns out you, it's the same in both. So, um, okay. So, so, so Jessica, int- say hi. Hi. Okay. And Zara. I'm so pleased I have the same shimmer as Zara. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is Zara weighing in with a little disco in my voice for you this morning. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you both have the PhD comp lit shimmer. I think that's where it comes from. Uh, which I didn't know about the fact that you guys both had PhDs in Complet. I just did not know it. And now, of course, I do. We also have a secret handshake. Oh, my. It's totally true. We have a special receptional IP events, and it's just the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> Barton's usually welcome, though, too. Oh, sure, sure, yeah. Yeah, so when they hand out the diploma for the Complet PhD, it comes with a shimmer and a secret handshake. Is that right? Mm. Mm. True. Okay, okay. So but what no are... job, I note. <laughs> <laughs> so they are joining us to talk today about a, a fun little paper, um, little in length, but not in ideas, uh, Narrative Topoi in the Digital Age, um, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what are topoi? Yeah, that was going to be my question. What is a topoi? Or what or are topoi? Yeah. yeah. Zara, you want to take this one? Sure. So a topos is a place um, coming from the Greek, but it's been used in rhetoric and narrative to some extent as a kind of a familiar place or path, almost like a trope, um, but a little bigger. Uh, and we were trying to think of what uh, what term we would use to characterize things in the digital landscape that were both old and new. And this gave us a way to talk about what were familiar story paths that uh, could be could be trod, could be tread. We're going to have to edit this part, uh, man. <laughs> uh, no, but um, could be tread by um, uh, readers, listeners, viewers in the 21st century, but that were familiar in certain respects to um, older story paths from, you know, let's say the 19th century and beyond. You, you mentioned on the second page, you compare the, it to genre. How does a how are topoi like or unlike genres? I guess I don't know what a genre is now that I think about it as well. Although it seems like genre seems like the word genus, like it's more like families. Um, What are your thoughts on genre? So, so I think about genre as a set of expectations you bring to a rhetorical practice. So it's, it's more discursive and back and forth. We have certain expectations for what graphic novels are or for what a television show is, for example, and the production of the story and content is made in relation to those expectations and re- of readership and sort of there's a mutuality. Topos and topoi, I think, although, I, you know, Zara and I didn't talk too much about this, but um as more of, it's a combination of rhetorical expectations and actual spatial manifestations. So situating the reader actually in time and space. That's right. And that builds on Bakhtin's use of it. Um, he, he talked about the chronotope in particular, but there's this use of topos as one of the things that uh, a reader will encounter in the larger generic landscape, right? So if you think of going to a museum and the 
kind of museum will fall within some genre. It might be like an older stuffy, you know, um, you know 18th century and earlier only, um, or it might be modern and invite you to do things like touch or smell or, you know, interact with the works. And then within each of those sort of g- uh, genres or generic uh, places, uh, the works of art or the uh, curation of an exhibit will be uh, topo. At least that's kind of yeah. a, a way to think about it. Yes. So, yeah, when I teach legal theory, I, you know, I have students write papers um, and inevitably a certain chunk of them are drawn to law and literature. Um, and either one of the two and like one of the first things they learn when they start doing their papers is there are kind of two kinds of law and literature. One is an investigation of how law and its practice is depicted in literature and what we can learn from that. And literature thought of as broad, broadly as, you know, whether it's movies or comic books even, uh, in addition to kind of written literature. Um, and, and then there is the the other side of it, which is how the legal practice itself is a kind of literature or how literary techniques are used with, within law. And so I take it that this is um, using kind of uh, a kind of literary theory or a way of thinking about um Culture, cultural literary practice as it appears within law and that somehow that's important for law students to learn law because this is in the Journal of Legal Education. But I imagine you also think for practice, it's important to kind of conceptualize these topoi in order to understand how conversation occurs within law. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that, um, yeah, the, what you're tra- talking about is the law in literature and the law as literature categories. And uh I think we were actually trying to engage both, although not being explicit about that. You know, the the topoi we identify are Twitter stories, serial podcasts and serial television and fake news. And all of them are are stories that contain stories about law. So we can think about them as. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. But but we I think the thrust, the, the more theoretical work of the paper is thinking about how these new forms or new old forms um, are challenging us to think about how law works in different ways in the 21st century. And by how law works, I mean how questions of facts and evidence and persuasion might be altered in internet discourse. So, so at the risk of being caught in a in an infinite loop or an infinite recursion here, um, uh, what, one of the three topoi that you talk about are, are podcasts, and so maybe maybe as an example, you can talk talk to us about like how how is podcasting as a, as a medium, um, how does it form kind of a legal topos topo topo topos topos topos. I don't speak Greek. Ancient Greek. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, we talk about how podcasts are old forms in the form of radio. That is, it's um, it reminds us of time when we would, pay, well, not we, but maybe our parents would listen to the news and investigative journalism and stories, serial stories on the radio. So in many ways, it's an old form, but it's brought into the 21st century differently because of its personalized nature. So we talk about how um, you don't have to wait anymore. You can listen to all the podcasts all at once, how they can be personalized because they're in your ear. You're not listening to them necessarily in group, but there's but there's definitely mass communication and, and conversation about it. So it's both individual and collective, and, uh, but it's it's separated in space um, that from radio because you carry it around and advertisements 
direct you to particular podcasts than others. So it's not as much of a collective culture as it much as uh, curated. Yeah, the, you know, the, there are so many different podcasts you can listen to. So, so you talk about Serial, um, the, the podcast of that name, uh, which was itself in its first season, a serialized story. And, and so Sarah Koenig invokes Dickens. And in that sense, it's a very, very old practice. But, um, you know, there are lots of different podcasts about lots of different topics. Uh, and because you can subscribe to the ones you like and they're delivered to you on the basis of when they arrive from your, your whatever your podcast app might be and you listen to them intimately, there is this very individualized sort of narrow cast feeling to it, even though it is something made available to. So there could be lots and lots of listeners. And, and one reason Serial made such a splash is because it had so many listeners. And it, so it seemed like all at once people were learning about podcasts, although they'd been around for a while by that point. Um, uh, so it's this interesting, uh, like modulus between like mass phenomenon, unique, uh, narrow cast phenomenon as a hybrid. I think that brings all sorts of challenges also to the idea of it being a coherent narrative. I mean, we think about serial stories as teleological leading towards a, a conclusion and an end. And that's sort of what brings us to the next one. We want to, we want the re revelation of the next installment. But so many of these law podcasts are actually pretty anti-narrative um, and they challenge the law's desire for conclusions. And, and we think that's sort of an interesting new feature of the podcast Topos. That's funny because, you know, our, our podcast is, is conceived as an ongoing conversation. It, it just is that. It is like in that way, it's kind of law itself in miniature Right, which is an ongoing conversation about how to live together, you know, as a society. And so, um, in fact, I think what like the original tagline of the show is like, you know, exploring the source code of society or something like that. Mm. And uh, and, yeah. and uh, um, so but, it's an, an infinite game, like but, it's a it's a it's a game that's just going to keep going yeah. round after round. But there is so a much point so, of winning and ending it. So much so that it's a that I make a joke of how the show has this teleological element of exploring Joe's psyche, and that there is an endpoint, right? So in that way, it's like one of these postmodern movies, right, where it appears to be about nothing, but in fact has a has an end state. But but the end state of the show is maybe more like the ending of two thousand and one, mm. um, open to many interpretations. Yeah. <laughs> there are stars. Um, <laughs> isn't that the end of two thousand one? The movie? Not exactly, but close, yeah. Okay. One thing I was going to encourage us to just quickly touch on is whether this, whether law needed to play a role in this paper at all. Mm. Uh, and I, I think it does, but I, you know, I go back to something that Christian said a few minutes ago, which we, you mentioned them in passing, you referred to legal topoi. And I think we, we were um, carefully calling our topoi narrative because I think the narrative mm. topoi concept is broader than anything legal. Um, but I think there are two reasons why law actually does have a special connection to this this thing that we're talking about, right? Because these, these narrative topoi could could have been uh, in a talk about you know uh, sociocultural change or a shift from mass media to you know the the, the podcast phenomenon, the the, the, the um, MP3 phenomenon, right? Like a player in every pocket or whatever. Um, but I think there are two things that at least and maybe more, but that make law uh, have special relevance. And the first is. Uh, that a lot of the time regulators are thinking about what to do about new media, um, whether in terms of regulating privacy um, or uh, safety or um, uh, thinking about defamation and various sorts of dignitary harms that flow from new uses uh, and the expanded reach of uh, new 
platforms. And I think if you think of all of the things bundled together with these devices and platforms as being new, you miss many of the historical realities that, in fact, a lot of these things have uh, uh, you know, a long tradition. And we have to figure out what's new about them if we want to assess whether there's really a problem there that we need to regulate differently. And then the second thing is, to Jessica's point about narrative desire, you know, it did strike us that many of the big moments in some of these um, narrative topoid had a legal subject matter or sort of a, a legal hook and that narrative desire created by um, oral argument, you know, this great podcast may be different from narrative desire uh, around, uh, you know, Adnan Zayed or other stories that have a drive to reveal the truth or reveal guilt or innocence or something like that. And it seemed like there just was a high number of legal stories. And so I just wanted to kind of make that intervention and, and ask, like, is law something special here? In what ways? If so, um, I just put that out. There. Yeah, no, one of the things, one of the questions I had reading the piece, and, and it's a short piece, everybody should just take a look and, and reflect on the fact. I mean, one of the things that I came away with reading it is, um, is this like renewed realization that that um, uh, our society, our particular society, like all of life, is change, right? And and this idea that we had a fi- that we have a fixed way of talking about things, or that we have a thing that we're trying to get back to, rather than just you know our society is way different than it was fifty years ago, and it will be way different fifty years from now. Like that, like that's easy to say and understand. It's another thing to feel it. And by pointing out these kind of three. Uh, uh, settings, these three settings for narrative, podcasts, Twitter, and fake news. And as, as really, like it, they are big, right? Big parts of our, of our narrative culture, and they're different than what has come before. And so like one question I had reading it was, um, is there, in, in the context of the journal uh, uh, of legal education and thinking about legal education more generally, um, are, are students who are kind of, who come to us having been immersed in these ways of talking, um, are they more prepared for the uh, for kind of the um, the dialogic nature of law, the um, uh, law's kind of uncertainties um, than because uh, most podcasts, I mean, all the, you can argue like Serial had a point, but like it ended without like a conclusion. Right. Um, most podcasts that people listen to, conversational ones, are ones where there isn't like an endpoint and. They listen to them to kind of rejoin old friends week after week. Um, a lot of popular podcasts are like that. Right. Um, fake news is this, um, although we can talk about, there's a very particular notion of fake news, right? That it is for the purpose of making money and you, you tell, you know, like you don't care about the truth at all. And you're, you know, so there, uh, and, and then Twitter where, where like, oh, you know, no one expects to kind of, for there to be a final point. I think about these people who argue about living constitutionalism and originalism on Twitter back and forth all the time. And I'm like, oh, today's the day when someone's going to land the, <laughs> the decisive <laughs> blow. And, and that debate will be over. But you know that it will never be over, that it's a bunch of back and forth. Um, so, so I wonder if like, is part of the point here that like these emerging topoi, like these emerging like narrative settings, are, are we just different now? Are people who come up within with those as part of the culture, are they just like different people? And, and does that mean that they will either like fit into laws existing uncertainty and discurs- and discursiveness better, or does it mean that like law is going to change in response to that? I, I'm just I, I found myself thinking a lot about like the relation between um, change and laws practice and and students who grow up you know in this environment. It's a big question. <laughs> well, one thing might be worth uh, saying, and this is since Jessica got the invitation to to write this essay. 
maybe just telling um, your listeners where the, you know, the idea for the piece came from, right? Was this symposium? You mean the the journal symposium? Yeah, right. I mean that we didn't kind of independently think, oh, let's think about this. What we uh, had was a prompt to think about what was law and popular culture or maybe just popular culture in the legal classroom. Was that right? Yeah, I think that's what it was. And the Journal of Legal Education is it, um, housed partially in, in my school at Northeastern. And um, it's always, I think, looking for ways of bridging um, advocacy practice and teaching. And so I, I can't help but think that part of what your question is asking is whether the law students were teaching may have a maybe better prepared to be advocates for particular positions because of the i guess the the relative messiness and ambiguity of internet speech i mean is that yeah. is that way well that, that, that could yes that could definitely be a part of it right that there aren't um you know when you get your news there there aren't these three choices on the dial for tv news yeah. and maybe two newspapers and they all kind of there's an authoritative um, view, right? Even though yeah. there may be a few different sources, that that's just not the way it is anymore. There's a lot of self-sorting that has to happen, right? Yeah. Well, I'll just tell you from my own experience teaching constitutional law in the first year and thinking a lot about narrative and norms of our argument structure is that I find the longer I teach the same subject, constitutional law, the harder it is to convince my students that the rules of constitutional law arguments are legitimate. And, and by that, I mean that they are, they are the rules of the game you have to play in order to win arguments at the Supreme Court. I can't help but think that some of that has to do with the fact that there are so many alternative ways of talking and that they, and that they are not necessarily exposed regularly to, a, to one dominant or two dominant ways mm. of talking about rights and remedies, for example, that, um, it becomes harder to explain to them why this one is the is the way we play, and 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 maybe that will have an effect on how the game is played, right? I mean, yeah. if, if if law in the eighteen hundreds was only a few steps removed from the monastery, right, and and law in the nineteen sixties and seventies is the law of the of TV, to what extent is the discourse and the rest of society kind of leaky? Uh, yeah. into into legal discourse. It does seem, you know, now, you know, I think of legal practice and there's that, um, I remember like working on briefs and things and there's a real drive to make them punchier, right? To to talk more uh, in, a, in a plain way. But when people say, you know, use plain speech, they mean the speech that we would use in other contexts, right? And there's, a, so there's an, almost an explicit desire to conform legal writing more closely to like again, the writing and and the ways of speaking in the rest of society, but those themselves are changing as functions of technology and um, and cha- other changes in the culture. Right. It's hard to know whether um, the the adaptation and the, maybe the broadening of the available ways of talking are a direct challenge to legal authority, or it's a shift of a different kind. Mm. That's I'm not sure. It feels to me like even if we're not talking just about legal authority, we're talking about epistemic shifts and changes in ways we understand and process things. So I found, uh, as we were working on this piece, I found myself really thinking about reading and readers. Uh, and I teach uh, first year torts, but I have a seven credit torts class, which means I get to do defamation, which is a real delight. And I get to kind of talk to students. And I have I feel like I've seen a shift in the kind of sophistication around 
um, reception, sort of broadly put, um, among my students and around media savvy. Like it used to be that you would have a handful in 56 person classroom, you'd have a handful of students who were very tech savvy. And even seven, eight years later, you know, it's like all of them are on these platforms, right? It's like there may be two or three students in the class who are self-professed Luddites and who really don't engage with these kinds of forms. But but engaging with these narrative topoi is no, no longer something that like geeks do, right? right or that the tech right. savvy do, it's sort of everywhere. And I'll just share that I went to the, the new Nancy Drew movie on Saturday night uh, with my uh, my kids, um, 14 and 11, and my stepdaughter's uh, also 11. And as we came out, first of all, we were all kind of talking about the various narrative things that had happened in the story. And that, you know, that was just fun. You know, even teens and tweens can be having that kind of conversation. <laughs> but my son, who was 14, said, you know, it felt more like a Netflix than a movie. <laughs> which we all understood what he was talking about. And I was like, well, what do you mean? Uh, because, you know, I'm a law professor even at home. And I'm like, well, make your point, you know. Um, and he was like, well, you kept expecting something big to happen and it didn't. And he didn't want to be the kid who said, like, I wish we'd just stayed at home. But there was a sense of, like, this was bingeable, but I'm wondering what the next one was. And that's exactly what one of my stepdaughters then said, um, you know, because there had been like a little kernel at the very end of the story that set up the sequel. And she said, I can't wait for the next one, uh, which is going to be about. And then they all knew the Nancy Drew stories anyway. But so it was just an interesting moment where they're being trained in particular ways. And as they enter law classrooms in the future, you know, maybe maybe none of those four kids in particular, but, um, you know, they're conditioned to have views and expectations about what's going to happen that, you know, are coming from having multiple different ways of engaging with content. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I remember as a law student, um, and, and we talked about this like one, on one of our early episodes where I was giving my theory of Dahlia Lithwick. Do you remember that, Joe? Mm, I don't. Well, okay, so I, I, I do remember this because because um, I still think it. But um, uh, I, I was in law school from 99 to 2002, and I don't remember exactly when Dahlia started writing Supreme Court Dispatches for Slate. But I remember uh, after the anthrax scare, she wrote this piece about how the judges went into the uh, were using the D.C. Circuit Courthouse, right? Mm. Uh, the justices. And and she had like very personal descriptions about how old they looked and how like it was a very kind of there, there was a lot that was meta about it, but also very insightful. And and that's just one example. Like she wrote this series of dispatches where you're reading very soon after they happened pieces that like would not find an audience if you only had like one newspaper, like the newspaper would want to write with a more authoritative voice on the substance. But for those of us in law school, like this is kind of a revelation. It changes the way in ways that you yeah. can't quite describe it how doesn't, you think yeah. about legal argument. It doesn't read like a Linda Greenhouse piece, perhaps. It doesn't read like a Nina Totenberg piece. Um, right. It, and they have their own They have their own voices. styles and voices, and so, right. Yeah, the, the ability to... Um, but that's just the point, right? That there are these... Diff you start to see voice rather than authoritativeness right and the way that everything uh is sort of the 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 internet kind of splits the atom of narrative and just so everyone can be talking in all these different ways each of which can find an audience um l large or small um and as people get more adept at sort of navigating all that experiencing that following what they like uh ignoring what they don't uh, there is a, a a sort of rich uh, stew of stuff. And the, you know, I, I, I guess it's, I'm not regularly around 12 to 14 year olds, but I, I, I don't, I'm not surprised that they're sort of becoming, uh, literary critics of a sort, uh, in, in 
the contemporary culture. And, that, and what are the law students? Given the rich stew that culture yeah. is. And what are the law students in, in five years from now who maybe as undergrads listen to something like this show? Maybe they listen to First Mondays. Maybe they listen to, uh, you know, um, uh, National Security Law podcast. Some of these other ones. Maybe they listen to the one that Cato puts on. You know, but but also they listen to the McElroy brothers in one of their many podcasts or something like right. that. Like so, they, or Judge John Hodgman. So or, yeah, they yeah. have a certain way of thinking about things. Like how are they going to like if if reading Dahlia's pieces like changed my understanding of law in ways that again may be hard to articulate. But like you know there is a difference. Like my brain is different because I read all those things. How will their brains be different? How will that affect the discourse? Is that one of the things that you're aiming at with? considering these topoi and maybe in the background i can't okay, help sorry but, <laughs> you know, I, mean, I just can't help but think that i i also have deep skepticism of the um of the utopian vision that joe just described about um the internet creating opportunities for so many different voices and and, and meeting people with or both shaping and meeting people with similar interests i, I think that's totally true I think that these stories wouldn't have found audiences in another in another, at another time when the modes of distribution were so much more constrained and subject to large forms of capital investment. But um, but I think the other part of the paper that Zara and I were were thinking very hard about was how these topoi shape um, shape their readers not in insidious ways, but maybe in less visible ways than we're yet paying attention to. Um, and she already talked about that in terms of her children being primed to want the next installment. Um, I think the fake news part of the paper talks about that a lot, that we're we're being conditioned um, to to want a particular form of story that um, that might actually do damage to um, the way we relate to one another. Yeah, that part of the paper, the fake news part, seems to me to be quite different from the um, the podcast and Twitter part. Uh, and I didn't mean to be utopian, <laughs> so because... Justopian. Uh, Neither utopian nor dystopian, <laughs> but justopian. Uh, yeah, I just meant to be... Yeah, topian. Um, <laughs> uh, I do, uh, because I think this the, the collapse of the, of the barriers to entry on... Uh, spreading your message, spreading your, your story, whatever it might be, and using different, you know, the, the platform called Medium or using Twitter or, or uh, sending out podcasts, et cetera. Um, but, but fake news seems quite different as a phenomenon to me and, and something that, that I felt did connect more uh, directly to me as a law teacher reading about it and thinking about the challenge of um, you know, part of the skill we're trying to give uh, new lawyers is this ability to tell fact from fiction in part as a step along the way toward persuading someone else about the fact of the matter as opposed to a fiction of the matter uh, in, in a common, in, in a context where it is common for there to be uh, two advocates, at least, uh, trying to establish uh, what the the better view of the fact of the matter is, and the on the one hand, you could say, well, a world where everyone knows they're constantly trying to keep their head above um, a, a rushing torrent of garbage um, means people are better at keeping garbage out of their mouth. Um, <laughs> but but um, <laughs> uh, that's but but we're all in a torrent of garbage. Like it, that seems bad. 
Um, so yeah, I, the, the back half of the paper definitely was sort of more of a, more of a, uh, a gut grab for me, uh, uh, and caused me to kind of worry a bit. And, and the one thing that I would add is like another, uh, another area you might add is deep fakes, right? This yeah. is something which is not, but yeah. imagine like if in 10 years we're like immersed in and people, and people like consume for entertainment, I bet it would be super entertaining to like watch a number of deep fakes where people are saying things, you know, we're basically real life looking people in video are puppets, right? And you, you can't tell the difference. I mean, I can imagine some, some podcasts, video podcasts, or, or some, uh, some other videos might be really fun to watch like yeah. that. It um, already exists in the form of this sort of lip sync comedy kind of stuff yeah. where it's, right. it's a, like a, a faked audio track that seems to match the, the right. mouth movements. Right. So, the, the so point, it's already here. Yeah. The point is that the deep yeah. fake stuff may not just be like people, like people trying to hoodwink others. It may become part of culture that you just are used to the fact mm. that you're seeing people dead and alive who are saying things they didn't really say. And it's like really entertaining. But then there's also this like other aspect. And then the, the upshot is that people don't trust the video on itself uh, in itself and then what happened so that you know anyway yeah. yeah yeah it doesn't always come from an insidious place i found it so interesting to learn that the bad lip sync uh bad bad lip reading guy um actually started uh doing what he does because his i think it was his mother was going deaf and he started to think about you know what is lost when one is used to accessing meaning and cultural production in a particular way. And he actually had sort of a point, you know, um, it wasn't just like a malicious or even just primarily humorous thing. Um, but I do think it is important um, to think about how these changes are creating something new if they are. You know, a lot of my, you know, a lot of our conversations as we were drafting this and trying to shrink it down, it was like twice as long as this. You know, Jessica and I share the view that many of these things are not new in certain respects. And we kept trying to force ourselves to articulate what, what was new about this, if anything. Mm. And I think things like clickbait do feel new when they are, as Jessica was saying earlier, so particularized, right? The ability to tailor uh, to a particular uh, viewer or listener means that like your podcast and mine are going to be different. And not just that, but as my colleague Ryan Kalos paper on digital market manipulability, I think, I can't remember the exact phrase, but as his his work and others ha has shown, right, it's not just that they'll serve up content to us that we're most susceptible to or likely to be interested in, but that advertisers know how each of us is likeliest to respond to something, whether, whether we um, ought to be appealed to through scarcity claims or through fear claims or through uh, luxury valuation, like you'll be the best if you, you know, so uh, they, they know our fears, they know our desires. And it, that is a new aspect. Like it's not just a mass appeal claim on a poster. And that I think coupled with new uh, abilities to engage us for long periods of time creates a, a potentially much larger psychological and social footprint. Seems like Aldous Huxley in this regard, it seems like Aldous Huxley and Brave New World is a is was a more accurate statement of a set of concerns than 1984 from Orwell. Figuring out what people want to experience and providing them that experience for long stretches of time uh, as a way to sort of mollify them yeah, uh, as a form of social control. That's the Huxley Brave New World vision. And it seems like that's, if you use our online behaviors as a way to algorithmically estimate what might most sharply induce us to continue to participate, 
that seems to me like a Brave New World sort of implementation. If uh, now I haven't read either book in a long time, but yeah. they, they strike me as two very, very different ways of of expressing a concern about uh, about a to- totalitarian uh, manipulation. Except that both make invisible the structure of control as they work on uh, their the audience or the citizens in different ways. But and that that's sort of one way that capitalism works too. Um, is that uh, when you can hide or obfuscate the the mode of production as being oppressive for the worker, but yet feel that you have opportunities to speak or be heard or uh, get rich, all the uh, that you know, the the cycle of dominance and control persists in the view of feeling free. And I, I have to say that although that sounds terribly abstract. And, <laughs> You know, critique. I, I actually think that one of the things we were trying to say in this paper is that these new forms of of narrative in the digital age, as they become more and more personalized and individualized, they have the sense of enhancing the individual voice. That you know, Sarah Koenig can be an investigative journalist and have an audience of millions of people just by turning on a podcast. You know. Um, Sarah Jong can be uh, a journalist by live tweeting from a from a newsroom, and um, you know clickbait and fake news gets virally spread just by the but you know starts with one click. There's this endless opportunity of an individual to make a huge difference in the way we think about a particular story, and it's actually it 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 you you forget that on. That's all because of a certain form of structure of the internet that has made that possible. That has has serious consequences. I think. Not, I mean, both negative and positive. But you just you you forget. I think you easily forget about that structure. It's interesting. When I was a student, uh, we published um, an article by Daniel Soloff. Great article about how um, the privacy. Uh, emerging privacy concerns on the internet, and this is back in like 2001, 2002, uh, that the better model for that was was neither Brave New World nor 1984, but Kafka's The Trial. Like yes. it's this information, yeah. it's this total lack of control. Right? I, would, I, would, I would agree with that. Yeah. And so one thing that's interesting to me is that uh, when we talk about like social control and being like, I see it more as like, it's, it's not as obvious how to participate in culture um, as you know, so and, and all three of the examples you you uh, that you give kind of point in this direction, right? So first of all, fake news like takes away my ability to trust. Like the more ubiquitous ubiquitous it is, the more like what, basically the, the higher the transaction right. cost of determining truth right. to the extent that I right. can. Um, podcasts mean that we are consuming. Maybe it's hard to know whether you are consuming the same media that I am, or the, the same shows that I am, or at the same time. So the water cooler conversation is maybe a little bit harder. Um, and uh, and certainly Twitter means that we we are. Um, I'm always surprised. I was surprised about this on Facebook too. That people like everybody's Twitter and Facebook, so they look different, right? Like when I look yeah. at my feed, it looks different than your feed. And and yet a lot of people operate assuming that people are seeing kind of the same things. I remember early on. I think back when I was on Facebook, I had gotten to a little bit of an argument with a guy who said, I think Facebook should be used for this and I don't like your posts or something like that because I was posting, a, you know, some political jackassery that I was posting. But uh, <laughs> uh, so, so maybe he had a point. But um, uh, 
you know, but the point is that like the people that I was following that like they were talking about this kind of stuff. And so we were just kind of seeing different things. And so it didn't seem out of place for you, right. but it did for him. So the point is that maybe all three of these uh, uh, topo- topoi that you point to are, indicate a certain like I don't know, ambivalence or, or difficulty for the individual in determining what it means to be a member of a culture. And what ways there are to participate, where maybe it used to be more obvious. You know, if I if yeah. I want to participate in this culture, I watch these shows, I read these newspapers, and I try to find a niche doing this or doing that. And now it's just like a lot less obvious. I think that's exactly right. I think finding yeah. a community, finding a community of of people who consume the same cultural content, is is hard. It's either everyone's doing the the stuff that's the most viral. Or there's just lots and lots of disaggregation. I think that's right. And I think it's one of the things that was noted, you know, first with television, right? When we shifted to Netflix and away, like well before the closing of the last blockbuster, right? I mean, it was a a crisis for advertisers talking about losing eyeballs because there were no longer must-see TV and three channels or even, you know, the basic cable fancy cable and regular TV, but you were still mostly watching things when they happened other than with, you know, a a DVR that was um, essentially centralized still. Right. And then um, as Netflix um, opened things up and, and that's not the only source of the sort of disaggregation of viewership, right. There were like a lot of discussions, right. You know, in the early, let's call it early two thousands about how society was sort of, uh, fragmenting because of the way that viewership was changing and people didn't have the same one, two, three, four shows that they were all talking about. And this is before really like the Game of Thrones kind of monoliths were, you know, creating uh, points of of focus or points of, you know, widely common interest, I think. Um, But I don't think that had happened for news yet. And I think depending on your political affiliation, there was still a sense that you started by reading the news, not through Facebook, but, yeah. you know, for the New York Times um, or wherever it was you went, um, uh, you know, either a, a paper version still in that era. I mean, TV was first. Right. Uh, and then or um, or going uh, and reading it online. And there's been something about the past decade or many facts about the past decade that have really changed that. And I think now, given the amount of importance uh, involved with getting our content from digital sources. I mean, how many people are still reading? I finally, like two weeks ago, canceled my Sunday paper subscription to the New York Times. Um, But, uh, you know, most of us spend a lot of our learning, reading, and connecting time online as opposed to somewhere else, hopefully also some in-person time. But (laughs) that's new. And it sort of, as I say, happened, I think, in two waves. One, first, where we saw it happen with television, and then second, where it happened, you know, more broadly with journalism, information, and other uh, modes of engagement online. It's especially odd that if we think about, you know, tr- again, educating lawyers um, and, and what lawyers do, and I have a, I, I mean, I have a litigation background, so I, I bet a transactional lawyer could help us sort of deepen the examples that come to my mind readily. Um, but thinking of it from that point of view of, of educating lawyers and and thinking about the fact that just sort of a the day in and day out job of lawyering involves things like, um, you know, again, t- figuring out fact from fiction, how to explain to someone else why you've reached that conclusion in a way that could persuade them, uh, thinking about narratives that decision makers will find compelling and therefore would be willing to rely on in resolving a case in your favor rather than in your adversary's favor. These 
these things do seem to rely at least to a degree on there being a pretty common uh pretty commonly deeply shared culture and so among the phenomena that will follow from uh fragmentation or or even a, a harsher fracturing um would be it will be harder to do those things <laughs> it will be harder to find a way to uh, both tell fact from fiction and then persuade another person why they should reach the conclusion you've reached about which is which. Uh, or yep. what are the narratives that would move a jury or a judge to reach a conclusion congenial to your client's interests rather than your opponent's interests? Um, you know, that's going to be harder if there, if you can't make that metaphor or you can't use that uh, example from popular culture because what is popular culture? It's if it's fractured to that to that point, and it, I haven't been thinking along these lines in in terms of how I approach things with my students. But but boy, I guess I should start. Yeah, I mean, I'll say two things about that. One is that I think um, when we were thinking, when Zara and I were thinking hard about what makes the podcasts today different from radio or Twitter stories different from um, you know uh, gossip or something like that. Uh, I, I think we were trying to come up with the patterns that in, in, that are in these topoi that could be the baseline for a common culture. Like, um, and so if, if podcast stories or serial podcasts have a predictable form, that becomes the foundation for understanding when conversations happen in that way. There is a there's a foundation or a structure on which to build our interpretation of the story being told. But the second thing I'd say is I think one of the things you're saying, Joe, and I think this is true, is that with the fragmentation or the disintermediation of of cultural discourse, there is a just a rejection of discipline and expertise and and hierarchy of practices. So and and maybe that's good in some ways, but when you can just say like there are two sides to this issue or there are four sides to this issue and they're all, you know, that that is a rejection of expertise and the kind of knowledge production that so much of the consequence of, of truth and justice are, are depend on, right? And so we we don't I think one of the things I see with my students is a questioning or calling into question the role of expertise and professionals and professionalism. And they wrestle with that, especially as first years, when what you're trying to do is make them talk in a certain way. And um, and and so you, we end up having a lot of these conversations about uh, about the, the, the righteousness of learning the discipline um, towards certain ends. And I think that that's that's something also that's being affected by this fragmentation. And it's kind of a, I mean, it's it's a deep question in law, in particular, um, as against other fields. What exactly marks the difference between expertise and elite authority, elitism, and, right. and you know, and, and that that's another way of kind of painting the two sides to the picture that you were just talking about, right? And and I think that um, you know, what, the question of what is journalism, like, what makes a journalist, right? I think that's also that, that's part of what the second half of the paper. So moving from the Twitter stories to the fake news, sort of what counts as journalism? Who can be a journalist? The difference between citizen journalism and the and the institutional journalist are being called into question, I think, for good reason. But we have to care about the ethics of the production of stories. Can, can I just ask you guys, um, are you worried 
I mean, <laughs> about um, so so if we kind of if we extrapolate a little bit, and of course extrapolation is the is the great sin of um, of, of any of any kind of futurism, but if if we think that you know there are going to be more and more podcasts or or things like it that replace it, basically more opportunity to kind of personalize your um, you know, to go all the way back to the 90s to do the CassSunsteinRepublic.com thing and, and law students come into law having their own set of legal podcasts and legal stories that they have been trained on and thought about and communities with uh, with which they discourse, you know, um, that like that looks like a different world where, you know, there already is, you know, there's the Federalist Society, there's ACS, you know, there are different groups there uh, that represent different interests within law. And, um, there are people more sympathetic to the critical legal studies tradition and those more who are more formalist. And so we have all of these divides within law. Um, and we have, and each of those has different narratives, right, about, you know, the New Deal and what really happened uh, after the Civil War in, in terms of like legally, right? And we, maybe it's not a factual difference, but a story about the meaning of, of you know, what happened at the founding. And so, but as these further kind of fractionalize and and people come into class having been um, brought up on very, very different kinds of media within different communities. So after class, when they want to talk about like what's happened or what they think of something, instead of talking with their classmates, they may, you know, talk to their Twitter community or they may listen to the episode of the podcast from the particular kind of po- You know what I mean? I mean, does it, is this worrying um, uh, to the extent that law requires a kind of, if not elite discourse, it, it does require a kind of like shared, you know, any kind of dialogue or dialectic requires some kind of shared reference points, right? Well, I guess I would say, see the 1L curriculum. Um, And I say it in a sort of a flip way, but I think actually that's our chance to establish at least some set of common principles um, and a common kind of groundwork. I also think that that's that's our chance to challenge the way that law students come as ready readers of law. And that's our, that's our sort of big selling year. I mean, I know that people change their minds a little bit in following years, having had that experience, and I'm sure all of us have had it, right? But right. like, I've often felt as though, and I felt this very strongly in my own con law class, which was taught by a wonderful woman at Columbia, and this is not about her, but that in some sense, um, people come to con law, and I'm curious, because I've never taught it, whether Jessica finds this or not, but uh, with their political views ready uh, in their pocket to justify however it is they're going to favor how they read, right? Whether it's actually constitutional interpretation or just an approach to laws, either living or or not. Um, and I think in some ways what we owe as 1L teachers is a constant from day one all the way through to their, you know, 1L exams are done, a constant pressure on how it is they're prepared to engage with law in all its forms and how how they're going to think of what it is they're doing as they're reading uh, and asking whether something is a fact sufficiently proven to be, you know, to, to constitute preponderance of the evidence or not, or whether a, a statute should be read a particular way or whether a party should recover. So I think in some ways, I'm not worried that there will be an outside set of, of communities um, that a student can go engage with. I think that's there and that's ready. But if we fail as teachers, it won't be because of that community. It'll be because we haven't sufficiently kind of asked that students work hard to think about and justify their own forms of, of reading and engagement as against alternatives that we've compellingly presented as a like, look, you could think about the law a whole set of other ways. Um, 
But yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's different for, for you. Yeah, no, I'll just give an example exactly of that. So I totally agree with you. I think it's a failure of teaching, not a consequence of the fragmentation of, cult the, of, of cultural stories. Uh, so when I first started teaching con law um, in 2004, all the cases about states' rights and federalism were very conservative in terms of they were brought and won by by federalist society folks. Um, and so the return, the small federal government, uh, more state sovereignty. Today, those exact cases, although the results are rejected by many of my students who identify as left-leaning, even radical liberals, they see the opportunities in those cases today for different kinds of equality and liberty arguments being made. So this, so they're being forced to read a conservative case in a opportunistic liberal way, um, and they can they they see that they see how it can be read in both directions. That the 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 political move doesn't have an ideological stance one way or the other or result. And I've I've I have found that incredibly um, liberating as a teacher to be able to teach Scalia opinions as opportunities, for example, for sanctuary city states, <laughs> for and um, and so they they are learning to read against the cases. And um, I'll also say that uh, I think they actively in con law um, find the alternative, the many alternative ways of reading against their own preconceived or their, their own politics because the con law doctrine is so circumscribed. Like if they're gonna have any hope at all, they're gonna have to get creative about what to do with some of these cases. And so we spend a lot of time thinking very consciously about interpretation and rewriting of doctrine um, together. And uh, so I, I actually have a lot of hope for the first year curriculum in that way. And working in teams is required, I think, hmm. working, working across groups of people. You know, I've taught con law one time, and I haven't taught in the 1L curriculum for a while uh, in, the, in the traditional uh, sort of uh, 1L class. I teach a 1L elective. Um, and, and I know that, Jessica, we've only got you for another minute or two, so I'm, I'd be as fast as I can be. But the, 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 um, I think along with the, the observations you have made, I think another thing that I try, not just in the, in the 1L classes that I've taught, but in all the classes I've taught, that I'm, I'm kind of both an anti- um, I'm both an anti-foundationalist and an anti-nihilist. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think we've got to make the truth that's worth having together, uh, yeah. which is the sense in which I'm anti-foundationalist. But mm -hmm. I think there is a truth we can make together, which is why I'm anti-nihilist. And so you have to, you have to, um, I, I think about doctrine as a way we can continue to build a story together in the sort of Hercules writing successive chapters from Dworkin idea, right? We, we can feel the constraint of trying to write a, a narrative that makes sense over a course of time. Um, and that that's a worthy project that, that we can share and influence and, and that can influence us. Um, it, I do think it is getting harder with the with people having the the wealth of resources that threatens to kind of spin everything apart. But this has been um, it's just, this is just such a fruitful. Christian was right; it's a short paper, but wow, is it fruitful! And I really hope that our listeners read it because it's very accessible, whether they're lawyers or not or whatever. It's very accessible and very provocative. 
And it also has lots of lists of great things to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> that too. That's true. So thank you both for joining us. This has been amazing. Thanks. It was a really fun paper to work on. It really was. I mean, we could have probably written a full-length article if we'd had the, the bandwidth and, and time because there was yeah. just so much to say and, ex and to explore. So thanks for giving us this opportunity. Yeah, stay tuned for the next installment. I, I, yeah, I was going to say, I fully expect that longer paper and that you will come back. We will have this conversation again, and then you'll come back again once you decide to turn that longer paper into a book. A shelf of books. That's, that's what narrative desire looks like, folks, yeah. right? <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. Thanks. Right. Thank, Thank you both. You. All right, bye.